exchange that for a free book for you. We'd love to just thank you for our men's, uh, for the one-to-one Bible reading. Now the, all the men and women are doing it, but the men are kicking theirs off today. And then on June 5th, right, is that the, the date for the women's kickoff as well? If you haven't signed up, just go ahead and come to that. We're trying to get every man in the church. So if you're you know, 12 and up, we want to get everybody in the church involved, engaged in one-to-one Bible reading. So whether you signed up or not, we'd love to have you men. Uh, just come immediately after the service today, and Doug Young will be leading us through that. Well, turn in your Bibles uh, to not 1 Corinthians, but to 1 Peter. So go over to 1 Peter for a moment. No, we're not starting a new series. Um, We are just pausing today to focus our hope in Christ. So 1 Peter 1, we'll be reading verses 13 to 21. This is God's holy, inspired word for us today. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. Let's pray for his word. Lord, thank you that your word is powerful, that it's living, that it's active. God, I pray that your word would would permeate our hearts, our minds. Would you open up our minds to be able to understand and receive from you, Lord? Would you empower all of us to hear your words? Lord, would you give me grace to preach this morning? God, I pray that your word would be alive and that, Lord, those who don't know you will be made alive in you through your word. And Lord, all of those who do know you, I pray, would be refreshed and strengthened by you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in the 1950s, there was a guy named Kurt Richter. He was the, the head of the psychobiology lab at Johns Hopkins, and he conducted a somewhat gruesome experiment. But I, I thought, you know, since we're a church family, we can talk about things that are kind of gross sometimes. But he conducted this experiment, and he wanted to see what would happen if he took lab, lab rats and he subjected them to putting them into water. And so he had a control. He had some wild rats, which were renowned for being aggressive and fierce, and they were excellent swimmers. They were able to kind of go across, swim across rivers. And so they captured these rats. They were freshly captured. Uh, they were strong rats. And then he took some lab rats that had never experienced really any difficulty. They'd been and fed their whole lives. And so the idea was to measure the amount of time that these rats were able to swim before they, they kind of succumbed to the water. And so he put this first rat in there and he noticed it. It swam around excitedly. It went to the bottom, kind of explored. It was a domesticated rat. It explored around there and then um, it, it dove to the bottom. It kind of came out of the top and a few minutes later it, it passed away. 
And then 12 more of the domesticated rats, they died in kind of a similar way. And then, interestingly, they had nine remaining rats, and they swam for days. And he was confused. What makes the difference with these rats? And so then he thought, I'll take these wild rats that they can swim really well. I'll put them in, and I'm sure they'll swim for longer. But he put the wild rats in, and as soon as he put them in, the wild rats died within a minute. All 34 of the wild rats died. And so he tried to figure out what is the difference between these two rats. And so he thought, I'll, I'll alter the experiment a little bit. So he, he took wild rats and then he put them in. But as soon as they were about to succumb, he pulled them out of the water. He held them. He comforted them for a little while. He put them back in the water. Shockingly, they, they, they swam. And every time they got ready to give up, he would pull them out of the water and he would put them back again. And then the crazy thing about these rats is that these rats that were dying before, all 34 of the wild rats that died, the ones that he pulled out of the water, put back in the water, they were able to swim for prolonged periods of time. And so he wondered, you know, what kills these rats? He says, the situation of these rats scarcely demand, seems one demanding fight or flight. It's rather one of hopelessness. They're in a situation against which they have no defense. They literally seem to give up. After he made that change in the experiment, though... He wrote that they recovered almost immediately. When the rats learned they weren't doomed, the situation wasn't lost, there might be a helping hand at the ready. In short, they had a reason to keep swimming. They didn't give up. They didn't go under. So he wrote, he says, after elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. There's obviously a lot of differences between rats and humans, but one similarity stands out. We all need a reason to keep swimming. It's important to maintain hope. What you hope in matters because hope is essential. This morning, I want to ask all of us, really, what, what, what is our hope in? What are you hoping in to keep swimming? What, what is the thing that you are hoping in? Peter, he was writing to people who were in exile. He, he calls them exiles in First Peter. They've been chosen by God. They've been... They believed in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've been rescued from their blindness. They've been set free. They'd seen the light, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. They, they thought Jesus is going to return any moment now. He's going to return soon. And yet a, a lot of time had passed. A few years had passed already, and he had not come back. And they, they'd run from their, their homes. They'd left their loved ones behind. They left their careers. They'd left their place of security, stability. They were experiencing hardship and persecution and suffering. And I imagine they were confused. They were tempted to be hopeless. You ever feel that way? You ever confused? You ever tempted to be hopeless? You ever wonder what's really going on? Why, why are things so hard? I thought Jesus was coming back. Where is he? You know, some of you might be experiencing some kind of relational pain, difficulty. Maybe you're experiencing loss of security or stability. Maybe you're having difficulties at home or at work. Maybe things didn't turn out the way you thought they would or the way you hoped that they would. Our temptation can be to be confused, to be bitter, to be angry, to, to lose perspective. And so Jesus writes to them, and I imagine as they, these exiles who were suffering in a strange land, I imagine that their hearts were, were warmed by hearing about the hope that they had it was like a life buoy being thrown to a drowning one. Despite what they were facing, despite this pain, despite the difficulty, despite the hardship, he says, you're being guarded by God's power. 
being guarded by God's power through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last days. And then he writes to them because he wants them to be refreshed. Maybe you need that kind of refreshment today. Maybe you need hope. Maybe you need to be reminded of hope. He wanted them to understand why they could have soap so they could know how to live as obedient children. Because as Christians, we, we know that we're supposed to believe God, to obey God, to live um, loving our neighbor and loving God. And yet it's really hard to do that. And it's impossible to do that if you don't have hope. But that Peter tells us about the way that we can actually obey and honor God is by having and hanging on to his hope, because hope enables us to live obedient lives in God. And that's really the opening emphasis of the letter. In verse 3, he wrote that they've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we've been focusing on the resurrection of Jesus Christ over the last couple passages in 1 Corinthians. So now, Peter here, in verse 21, he reminds them of this fact again. He says, he says though through Jesus they are believers in God who raised him from the dead... And gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So they have a living hope. Then he tells them to set their hope. And then he says, I want you to remember that you have hope through him who raised him from the dead. And between these reminders of hope, he is trying to enable them to obey Jesus no matter what comes. No matter what happens in life. And we, when we need to do the same thing to obey Jesus, don't we? we? We need to have hope to obey Jesus. Otherwise, you're kind of going through the motions, becomes routine. And so Peter reminds them, and I think God will remind us, that we hope fully on grace. That's what our hope is in. Our, our hope is not in our self-efforts, our ability to keep ourselves. He says, set your hope fully. Where's your hope? Then the question for us is, is our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us? He doesn't, he doesn't say it might be brought to you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you place your faith, your trust in him, we have this promise. He says, you have a hope and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you, not, not might be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. So when all is said and done in this life, um, we're, we're not better than anyone else as Christians. We don't, we don't think that somehow we're superior, we're better we get things, we understand things because of our wisdom, our understanding, our knowledge. We're, we're so bright, we're so intellectual. No, we don't think that. No, we just have trusted in the hope of Jesus. And so he says, set your hope fully on this grace. It will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. No matter what occurs in this life, if you put your trust in Jesus, he says, you will have a hope that is fulfilled. It will be brought to you when Christ returns. You know, for a lot of us, though, we... We think of hope as something that's not certain. That's not the kind of hope that Peter's talking about here. We can think of hope as like, I don't know, hoping that Greenville Drive will win. Um, that, that, I think that's rarely occurring nowadays. Or maybe we hoped last year that, that the Clemson Tigers would go to the national championship. That was not a certain hope. You can hope for a lot of things. You can hope for circumstances to change. And you can hope for... Better times, you can hope for a better economy, you can hope for all kinds of things in life. But that's not the kind of hope that Peter's talking about. He's talking about a, an assurance, something that is certain, that we're putting our faith, our trust in. The hope that we have is in Christ that's certain. The grace of God that's going to be poured out on us. Instead of receiving wrath and punishment from God because we've disobeyed him. This is all of sin to fall short of the glory of God, but we deserve punishment for that. 
But our hope is that because of Jesus, we will not receive wrath. We will not receive punishment because he received all of that for us and in our place. Instead of condemnation, he's going to reward us for all that work that he's done in us. But you know what? Sometimes we have our hopes set on other things. We hope for situations to change. We hope for circumstances to change. We hope for people to change. We hope for stability. We hope for comfort. We hope for security. We hope for peace. And those are all good things, right? What are you hoping in ultimately this morning? Listen, as, as believers in Jesus, this doesn't make us immune from being tempted to hope in other things. If you're like me, you can hope in, in circumstances being better or people being better or finances being better. But you know what happens is when you put your hope in those things, that, that person, that outcome, that situation, that can become an idol for us. And, and Peter tells us, don't do that. Don't allow that to occur. Set your hope. It's an active thing. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us, not partially as if it's Jesus and something else. As if our hope is on his grace and an easy life, or his grace and finances. No, it says fully. But it's difficult, isn't it? Let's be honest here. It's really difficult because life's hard. You know, God, <laughs> people are crazy. But Peter tells us two means here in this passage. He doesn't just leave us alone. He says, set your hope fully. And he gives us two means to set our hope fully on the grace of God. He says two things. He says, preparing your minds for action. That word in the original language, in Greek, the original word, it just means girding up the loins of your mind. Now, now I don't know about you, but I, I, I've never girded up my loins before, so... Um, I've, it's not a phrase we use anymore. So I, I stole a picture from, uh, I don't remember where it was from, from the art of manliness. <laughs> stole a picture from them about what does it mean to gird up your loins? So when, if they're getting ready to go into battle or preparing to run or to do heavy manual labor, they would take the robes and they would pull them up and they would kind of wrap them around and tie them. You see the guy in the lower right hand corner, now he's ready for battle. He's ready for action. Peter uses that kind of same words. He's consciously girding up, getting ready ahead of time. He's not going into battle unprepared. He's he's girding up the loins of his mind. So so he, he tells us the same kind of thing. You prepare your minds. Don't be placidly just kind of going along in life, um, not prepared for what life throws at you. He says, prepare your minds for action. Get ready to work hard. Get ready to fight. Because there's a battle. So he says, prepare your minds. Gird up the loins of your minds. Take action. You know what? All too often, though, as Christians, we, we fail to prepare our minds for what we're going to encounter, for the hardships, for the difficulties, for suffering, from prolonged experiences of unmet hope. We walk into situations blindly and unprepared. And Peter says, don't do that. He says, take time to set your hope by, by preparing, girding up your minds. Remind yourself, your hope doesn't lie in being accepted by other people. Your hope doesn't lie in whether other people do what you want them to do. Your hope doesn't lie in your circumstances, your situation, and ultimately, your hope can't be taken away. Exiles that he's writing to, your hope can't be taken away by hardship. And as we seek to set our hopes fully on the grace of God, he doesn't just tell us, gird up the loins of your mind, prepare your minds for action. He says, be sober-minded. Think soberly. Don't be like a drunk person stumbling around being led by your emotions, being led by your feelings. Have a sober mind. Think 
soberly. Don't be intoxicated by the things that the world gets drunk on. Don't be driven by our desires in the, to live in the, in, in the way that the world lives, but live in, as if you're living for Jesus. Be sober-minded. Know your inheritance that he writes about earlier in 1 Peter can never be defiled. Our inheritance in Christ will never fade. It's secure in, in the vault of heaven. He's powerfully guarding us until that last day. And we're going to receive grace when Jesus Christ is revealed. So let me ask you, what, what, what do you get angry or bitter or resentful about or despondent or fearful? That might reveal what you're hoping in. Those things that you're not getting, those unmet expectations that we get fearful or angry or bitter or resentful about, those reveal our hearts and that's a gift from God so that it reveals where we're not hoping so then we can say, okay, I need to set my minds fully on the grace that will be revealed. I need to be sober-minded, think soberly. Look, we, we all fall into that trap and yet we have hope to change. If you have your hope in other things, your hope's gonna be shaken. We have an unshakable hope that we're certain of as Christians. We have to set our minds on and prepare for whatever might come. And so not only does hoping on grace enable us to live obedient lives in God, but hoping in your identity. Hoping in your identity. Not who you are on your own, but hoping in your identity in Jesus Christ as a Christian. We have a new identity. And so what he tells us is that as, as believers... We have a completely new identity and we're to hope in our identity. That's what he tells us in verses 14 to 17 there. You know, I, I know all of you who are members of this church, you've seen my kids before. Um, for, the, for those who are visitors who haven't seen them all, I'll, I'll put a gratuitous photo of us up here. Um, that's the most recent photo right before Noah's wedding yesterday. So if you'll notice, they all kind of look alike. You know, we only make one kind of kid. We, we don't, I don't know how to make another kind of kid. They all kind of look similarly. They all have this Rawlings identity. And it's kind of inescapable. I remember I was at the, the wedding reception yesterday, and they're like, oh, you must be Noah's dad. I'm like, well, why do you say that? And we're like, well, he kind of, he kind of looks like you. Um, when I visited Abby at uh, Charleston Southern to pick her stuff up from school a few weeks ago, her friends noticed that she looks a little like me, but she's pretty, so there's a big difference there. So... But, but for now, at least, my kids are stuck with their identity being a Rawlings. They look like us, uh, at least until I begin to get a little more wrinkly and my looks go the way that everyone's looks go, right? To some degree, it's not just externally, though. All of my kids are a little bit like us, either Julie or I, in some way, and, and I'm sure that drives them all nuts, in some ways, they're a little bit like us in their mannerisms, their behavior, their, their facial expressions. And that's, that's also why some families are a little bit weird. And, you know, you see your parents and you're like, oh, I get it. Um, so, <laughs> as children of God, he tells us we're to, we're to look like God. Not, not physically, obviously. You can put the, yeah, again, thank you for putting the picture away. this. <laughs> We're meant to look like him, not physically, but in the attributes we display. And there's something that happens when you put your trust in Jesus. He, he says that you go from, from being a part of this natural human race where we're all born into Adam, born into sin, to by faith, something happens on the spiritual realm, by faith you become like Jesus. He gives you a new nature, a new identity. You have a new father. 
he now says, as children of God. And that's to affect how you live. It affects how you look, how you interact with others, and how you think about yourselves. It means that we act like our Father. And there's a theologian named J.I. Packer. He felt so strongly about this that he writes, he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, listen here, if you want to understand, judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. How much do you make of that? He says, and having God as his father. Think about that for a moment. How much he makes of having the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, does that thought prompt, control your worship, your prayers, your whole outlook on life? If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Do you see that as your identity? Are you hoping in your new identity? It means patterning our lives after the Father, learning to live and love like Him. So in verse 16, that's how and why is the grounds for the command to be obedient. He says, since it's written, you should be holy, for I am holy, because He expects that we're going to look like Him because we're His children now. That's your identity. This is not striving to be like God because you are something completely different. No, He has now made you. He's given you a new identity because He says, for you shall, shall be holy, for I am holy. And part of our hope in the identity as children of God also includes the fact that not only is God our Father, it says, but that he judges impartially. He judges impartially. You know, because my, my kids, they're, um, they're recognized as more belonging to me more easily, people also can have expectations about my kids and their behavior. You know, where, where I go places, they, they quickly find out I'm a pastor, and because of that, they can assume that my kids are going to behave in conformity to whatever they believe a pastor's kids should be like. And now, by the way, it's a lot of pressure, but for better or worse, that they, they have an awareness. My kids all live with an awareness of the fact that they're conducting themselves as my children because they know this can reflect on me, on the family, and that I'll likely discover behavior too because people are quick to report that. But some degree, we, we live differently because of who we are and who we belong to. Back in, in 2000, when we had moved to Vancouver, British Columbia, to help plant the church there, um, you know, Canada is a little bit like the 51st state. Um, when we moved there, we thought, oh, there's not a lot of differences. And, but the thing is, I, I quickly became aware of our American citizenship when they started protesting after 2001, when the U.S. invaded Iraq. Um, they were protesting right across the street at the American embassy. And I was aware that I was, to some degree, living as an exile. I was different, and it shaped our identity. And then I, re I realized that it shaped, when I interacted with people, I didn't immediately introduce where I was from. It, it shaped things. It, it changed the way I interacted with people. I identified with my side. You know, before, I was thinking, oh, there's no real differences. Then I realized, oh, well, I'm an American. That's different than a Canadian. Recently, over 4 million 
Ukrainians have gone into exile. It's been imposed on them by Russia invading their country. You know, they've found places to live everywhere. They've, they've gone into exile, fleeing, going to every gymnasium, every school, every place they can find room and packed into there. I, I don't think we can identify. I don't think we can relate to that. Imagine being forced to flee your homes, living as exiles. Well, the Ukrainians don't have to be reminded that their whole lives have been uprooted. They're keenly aware of their identity as Ukrainians when they're in Poland or Moldova or wherever they're at. And it shapes everything about them. And so Peter, he's writing to the believers in Jesus Christ here, and he says, I'm writing to you as exiles. That identity shapes everything that you are. You have an identity as, you're, you're children of the Father. You're exiles. You're, you're also children of an impartial judge. He, he does judge impartially. That's, that's meant to give us some motivation. Remember, he, he, he knows, he understands. Be aware, God is not ambivalent towards our actions. But the judge is also our Father. And so he says, don't be conformed. Don't let your identity be conformed to the identity of the world. Let your hope be changed by your new identity. Don't let your thinking be patterned after the thinking of the world. Christian, are there any passions that you're allowing yourself to be conformed to that have to do with your former ignorance? Are there any things that drove you? We're meant to hope in, in God as our impartial judge who's also our father. We're being able to live out what we are to the extent that we know who we really are. Do you know who you really are in Christ? What identity are you hoping in? Well, not only does his grace enable us to live obedient lives, our new identity enables us to, to live lives that are pleasing to him, but he gives us a more reason for hope in verses 18 to 21. He says, hope in your ransom. Hope in your ransom. You know, back in, in 1996, there was a, a movie that I can't endorse. It was called Ransom, and there's a picture of Mel Gibson, who's definitely fallen out of favor nowadays, but, but uh, it's a very ominous-looking poster. It says, look at the bottom, it says, someone is going to pay. Someone's going to pay. A group of, uh, of people had kidnapped. He was playing this multimillionaire son, a multimillionaire whose son had been kidnapped, and people had demanded ransom from him. But after he realized there was no guarantee that he was going to get his son back, he, he flipped the script. And he says, you know, instead of paying $2 million ransom to them, and I don't know if I still if I'll get him back, I'll pay $4 million ransom to kill my son's kidnappers. To, and and if, if the, the son is returned alive and unharmed, he'd pay a bounty. But somebody had to pay because a great injustice had been done to the son, and the father wasn't going to let it slide. In, in a complete reversal of what you might expect. He says, the Bible tells us that, that all of us were enemies of God. All of us were hating God, whether you know it or not, living against him. We've done a great injustice to the Son of God. Our sins put him on the cross, and yet God says, I will pay a ransom, but not, not to have us killed. I'll pay a ransom and they might go free. The ransom of his own son. We were all sin. We were all enslaved to sin. We were trapped in a life of crime. 
unable to say no to sin and obey God, we're doomed to futility, to, to live for ourselves, live as God's enemies. And shockingly, though, God always had a plan. Someone has to pay, but he paid the price himself. And so Peter writes to that. Look in verse 18. He says, knowing that you were ransomed. That's how we can set our hope fully on the grace of God, fully on our identity in him, fully on the fact that we've been ransomed. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile, the, the, the pointless, the empty, the worthless ways that you inherited by your sin nature. You inherited this from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. Now that's also probably referring to the, this, these, these futile ways when not just we're stuck in sin, we're stuck with the same ways that our parents raised us in, but we're also stuck with thinking that our religious achievement will earn something before God. That's all futile. Living for ourselves is futility. Living for trying to rescue ourselves is futility. He says, you were ransomed from that. And then he says something that's kind of shocking. He says, not with something perishable like silver or gold. Now, for them especially, silver and gold were the most imperishable, precious metals they could imagine. He says, you weren't ransomed with something that's, that's perishable like silver or gold. You've been ransomed with something that's way more precious, something that's eternal, something that's everlasting, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son. He says, the precious blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Every year, good Jewish people would take a lamb that was spotless, and they would sacrifice it to cover over their sins every year, but they had to do it time after time. And it says, you were ransomed with something that's more lasting than that. The blood of Jesus Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He says in verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. And he paid for your sins, my sins, with his own blood. By becoming a sacrifice in our place, atoning, covering over, taking the wrath of God. And it says, knowing that, knowing that you were ransomed, it's meant to affect you. Where's your hope? Is your hope in His grace? Is your hope in your new identity? Is your hope in His ransom, your ransom? Hoping in His ransom is meant to make us humble and grateful people. We're not proud. We don't have it all together. We mess up just like everyone else. But we have a hope. We've been ransomed. We don't have to be stuck in the same old ways anymore. We don't have to be stuck in sin. We can actually continue to grow. We can live an obedient life to God. It says, who through him. Look in verse 21. It says, who through him. Not through our own abilities, but through him. Are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that what? So that your faith and hope and your ability to keep yourself? No. He says, so your faith and hope are in God. That's how certain our faith is because his resurrection is certain. Because Jesus is the only one who's ever been resurrected and still lives. And because he still lives, our hope is certain. And now our lives are to be lived in response to who he is, in response to this great salvation, in response to the hope that we have. Obeying him, fearing him, living for him, living holy lives, remembering that we have a ransom that has been paid for us, remembering that we have a new identity as, as children of the judge who is our father. I remember when I was a, a young boy, it was one of the first books that I read was Pilgrim's Progress. Anybody ever read Pilgrim's Pilgrim's Progress? If you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to read it. It's, it's a timeless book. 
I was deeply affected by it. At the end of the book, though, this main character, Christian, he's going on this journey to the celestial city, but right before he gets to the celestial city, he sees it on the hill, but right before he gets to the celestial city, he encounters this dark river. And it was a river that was, was too deep and too wide, and the current was too fast. And so he was, he was so ecstatic as he came up to the river, then he sees the river, and all of his hopes are dashed. They've been accompanied by angels, but this dark river is tumultuous. It's intimidating. It's too broad. Its current is too fast. There's no bridge. There's no boat. And they says they're very much astounded. And they ask their companions, what should we do? The angels say, you, you must go through or you can't come at the gate. And so now Christian's thinking, oh no, it's done. And so he asks, is the water all deep? They say, no, you shall find it deeper or shallower as you believe in the king of the place. Crossing the river of death, it's a test of faith. So apprehensively, the pilgrims, they wade in, and Christian, it says he cries out. He says, I sink in deep waters. The billows go over my head. All his waves go over me. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And he becomes despondent, and he begins to sink. Be of good cheer, his companion, hopeful, calls out, saying he's found good footing, and he'll help him. But Christian, it says, goes down in great darkness and horror as he recalls all of his sins both since and before he began to be a pilgrim and then he loses his senses and he sees kind of hobgoblins and evil spirits and all kinds of things and then hopeful does everything it says to keep his brother's head above water sometimes he'd be quite gone down and then ere a while he rise up again half dead eventually hopeful persuaded christian he is not lost if he sets his hope fully on Christ, he'll be saved. And in the end, he is. And he comes to Celestial City. And then as he goes through the gates, he, he sees, written in letters of gold, blessed are those that do his commandments that they might have a right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gate into the city. But you can only get there as you have hope to the end. If you lose hope while you're swimming in the, in the dark river of life, you're going to sink. If you think there's not hope, like those rats in the beginning, you quickly sink. But, but unlike the rats, God doesn't just pull us out for a little while to give us false hope. No, he has forever rescued us from the dark waters. He forever keeps us in his hand. He holds us in his grasp. No one can remove us from his hand. We have a real hope. He offers true and lasting salvation. If we set our hope fully on the grace, we will receive. Hoping in our identity, hoping in our ransom, and that hope enables us to live obedient lives. Amen? Let's pray and then uh, have the band come up and we'll sing together. Father, we confess that it is difficult. It is difficult to hope. Life is challenging. It's long. It's hard. People disappoint us. Situations are not what we expected. Our life often doesn't turn out the way we thought it might. Sometimes we don't get the things we want. We're looking to for hope. Lord, thank you for revealing those areas that we've been hoping in that are not you, but Lord, help us to not only renounce hoping in those things, but to hope in the grace that we will receive, to hope in our ransom, to hope in you. 
God, I pray this morning that all of those who have not placed their hope in you would see what they've been hoping in for life. See the futility. And God, I, I pray that you would enable all of us here to trust in the fact that, God, you loved us so much that you wanted to rescue us from these deep, dark waters that we would otherwise drown in, that you sent your son to take our place, to bear our sins and shame, to give us his life that we might have true and eternal hope. God, enable us to, to have renewed and refreshed hope in you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.